Hey, it's Ari again. Thanks for listening for a long time, or if you've just come to the podcast, I appreciate you being here. With the 500th and final episode coming up, I thought it might be cool to go back to some fan favorites. I always think it's important to understand where you've come from in order to figure out where you want to get to. So this episode and a few of the following are some of the favorite episodes as chosen by listeners of the podcast, members of the Replaceable Founder Facebook group, which you can join for free by going to less.do slash Facebook. And what I'd love for you to do I don't want you to leave a review on iTunes. I don't want you to go buy something from my website. Listen to the episode and then head over to www.voxwithari.com and get in touch and just let me know what you think, what you thought of it, any new ideas that you got from the podcast, whatever your biggest productivity challenges are because that's the kind of material that I love. And it fuels some of my best and most innovative ideas. Please enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Leverage Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ari Mizell. And I'm Nick Sonnenberg. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with probably the greatest entrepreneur coach that's ever lived and is continuing to live. And, and I recently learned that is going to be living for quite a long time. <laughs> He's coached over 40,000 entrepreneurs over the last several decades and is the creator of the Strategic Coach Program. So Mr. Dan Sullivan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Ari, Nick, it's great to be with you. This is a long time coming because I've heard about you and what you do for a long time. You have one of those businesses that just perfectly meshes with the main concept of Strategic Coach, which is unique ability, namely that entrepreneurs should just do what they're really great at and then find ways of leveraging themselves through their own team, but also with skills and capabilities that are outside of their own company. So I'm really pleased for this opportunity to talk to your community. Well, thank you again. And so I want to actually start with the beginning. And how did you start or even come up with, honestly, the idea for Strategic Coach? Because was it 40 years ago? 43 years ago. 43 years ago. I mean, that's pretty ahead of your time. As far as we can tell, we were like the first entrepreneur-focused coaches out there. And even the whole idea of coaching wasn't very well known then because in the early 70s, it was still mainly corporate. The world was mainly corporate entrepreneurs were seen as these sort of marginal creatures off to the side. And the big difference was the microchip. The microchip really changed the game. It just flipped everything on its head in the sense that individuals who were entrepreneurs equipped with microchip-based technology could show up in the marketplace as having enormous capabilities, marketing capabilities, packaging capabilities, And then they had backstage capabilities like databases and customer relationship packages. So the whole world, in my notion, really changed with the microchip and then the personal computer. And now, of course, with the Internet, it was almost like a 
three-stage disruption in the old model. Just the area where you are in New York City right now in early 70s, that would have been the garment industry. You look over on the west side with the old meatpacking, that would have all been meatpacking companies. And so the lower part of Manhattan would have been very, very corporate in the sense of big companies. And now all those buildings are really filled up with entrepreneurs who you know, are leveraging themselves through technology and through linking up with people with other skill. And that's just the general framework in which I got the idea of being a strategic coach because what I've noticed is that entrepreneurs don't need management. What they need is coaching. They've got really great ideas. They have a lot of ambition. They have really good skills. But the problem is that they've just got way too much going on in their mind, and they can't quite focus. And my job is just to get them simple, get them focused, and then make a real division about what they're good at and then where they need everybody else's help. So how did coaching change? Like, What's similar and different between when you were coaching back in the 70s compared to how you run strategic coach today? Yeah, well, the big thing, I was a one-on-one coach for 15 years. It would just be me meeting people anywhere, coffee shops, restaurants, their place. What I created right off the bat, though, over time was sort of a process that people would go through on a quarterly basis. And that was a huge breakthrough for me was the quarterly basis. The other thing was that I created a no receivables business really quickly in the sense that I got paid up front for a certain time period because I actually went bankrupt twice in the late 70s and it was because of receivables, receivables. And I just said, you know, I can't live my life in a world where I do the work and then maybe 30 days later I get paid or 60 days later or 90 days later. And it wasn't that I hadn't done the work. The money was out there somewhere. It's just that it didn't come in. And the bank is very, very unsympathetic to this type of discussion. Well, we kind of took care of that from day one with our company. Yeah. Yeah. Receivables. Yeah. 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 The entertainment business, you don't get to pay afterwards when you go to the theater. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Apart from the risk of going bankrupt, too, it could just be a time suck having to chase people, which, you know, you don't want to deal with. Talk about unique abilities. It's not your unique ability to go and be a bounty hunter. Well, uh, yeah. And it usually requires a dedicated staff person. So you're paying an extra salary just for the purposes of hoping you'll get your money in on time. And so there's a lot of unpleasantness with it. And I have to tell you, I play by the same rules. So I have a trainer that I've had for 22 years as a weight trainer. And we figured out he does about 50 sessions a year with us. And so we pay him up front for the whole year. We just pay him for 50 sessions. And then it's our job to show up. If we have to cancel, then it's on us. It's not on him. But He's locked in for the year, and it works out really well. And I would do that with a lot of different services in my life, but a lot of people just can't get their mind around how you would do this. And that also simplifies things for you, obviously. You're not having to make like monthly payments to anybody or paying every time. That's that. I mean, that's definitely a simplification. Well, what you do is you turn your client base into your bank. They're actually giving you a line of credit a half year into the future. <laughs> At any given time, I have half of a year's total revenues available to me just because of the way the money comes in through the year. So not only have I taken receivables out of the 
equation, I've also taken the bank out of the situation. So one of the things that I noticed, I mean, I know about the program as well with this, but I'm curious how this has changed or not. But when I was there and the way the program is just now, it doesn't seem to me, and maybe I'm wrong, that it's really suited for startups per se, because the people there, you, you know, there's an income qualification, like there's established businesses that are there, still entrepreneurs, of course, but they're not just like three guys that are putting together something that they just started. Yeah. Is that how it always was? Yeah, very, very quickly, I began to realize that if people didn't know their business here and they didn't know their business model, it was very hard to get their attention because they were in such a survival mode that there was a lot of things that they couldn't apply, like our free time policy, you know, that you need more free time in order to free up your brain so that you're more or less operating always at a strategic rather than a tactical level. What happens when you don't have any free time strategic thinking becomes impossible and everything is tactical. And that's a crucial, if you use the word leverage, free days are a crucial leverage point in our system. And it's very contrarian. I mean, it really runs against the grain. Somehow you're not an honorable entrepreneur if you're not working seven days a week, 80 hours a week and destroying every other part of your life except the startup. So what we decided to put in is that there was the three-year rule and that people had to have three business cycles underneath them so that they could kind of see what their cash flow models were, what their business models was. And that was enough. Plus, during that time, they had to hit our income qualifications. So, I mean, these are things you learn as you go along. I mean, there's a lot of trial and error. Your business probably have enormous amount trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> Every day we're trying something new here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing is note to self, don't do that again. Don't work with this kind of person. Thank God. Like we test a lot of things, but the core assumptions that we made held since the beginning. Yeah. We've tested and tweaked a lot of things, but still the root core of what problem we're solving and what we believe in and how we set it up hasn't changed from day one. No. First of all, because if you want to use the fundamental basis of capitalism, one of the building blocks is the division of labor. That's Adam Smith in 1776. And basically that do what you do best and then trade with other people who are doing what they're best. And he was talking between countries, but basically it's between individuals. I only do three things really well. I coach. I'm a really good coach. Second thing, I'm really good at coming up with new ideas for the program, so I can be innovative all the time. This is our 28th year, and we're more innovative in the 28th year than we were in the first year. And the third one is I'm a good marketer. I can get the message across. I'm still the number one salesperson in the company, which I feel the entrepreneur always should be the number one because you're the one has got the most passion for what you're doing. You are the one that knows what your value creation model is in the marketplace. So I just confine myself, and 95% of my time every year is just those three activities. Very little management of the company is involved in my schedule. Have you found like a common theme among your clients in terms of what people in general do wrong or need more help with, or what's the low-hanging fruit that you find in general with the people that you coach? Well, I think the danger period is actually the startup period, the startup period. And the reason is because entrepreneurs get into a lot of bad habits when they start up. One of them is the notion that if I'm not busy, I'm not contributing. If I'm not putting in long hours, 
I'm not a really serious entrepreneur. The other thing is that by necessity in the early part of your career, you have to do a lot of things just because a lot of things need to be done. But it doesn't mean that you're very good at that. It just means that it had to be done. But entrepreneurs can get hardwired very early in their beginning of their career, and then they begin to think that nobody can do this as well as I can. That really gets ingrained in them, you know, and they're involved in the machinery where they should be expanding the machine. You know, they shouldn't be inside the machine. They should be guiding the expansion and the increase of power of the machine. They shouldn't be doing any of the the work. In virtually any area of implementation, in any area of problem solving, practical problem solving and implementation, almost anybody is better at it than me. I'm just not good at that. I'm a make-it-up guy. I'm not a make-it-real guy. I'm not a make-it-recur guy. I don't have any of those skills. I don't have the staying power. I don't have the interest. I wear out fairly quickly and do damage to myself and others when I'm involved in that type of work. I feel like everything he's saying is like a better sales pitch for what we it's, yeah, it's right. so, it's, we've used. We've used a lot of the phrases you just used as part of our sales pitch, why people should outsource. But I think you've just even rephrased it better. We should, we should go back through this recording and take yeah, notes yeah, on I'm, how to sell our I'm good own at service. Making it up, not making it yeah. Real. Yeah, yeah. Inside the machine <laughs> instead of on the machine. What I know through Joe and from talking to Ari, haven't interacted with you as much, Nick, yet, but... It just makes so much sense, the service that you're offering in the marketplace, because the leveraging capability that you allow people, they don't even have to think through the problem that much. All they have to do is be able to give you a phone call or send an email and basically say, this is my problem and this is what I'm missing. Quite frankly, I don't even know where to look for the solution. And could you help me out? And That's a beautiful mindset when somebody says that because they're noticing the difference between where they're good and where they're not good. On this side of the line, I'm supreme. On the other side of the line, I'm a disaster. And it's very important for entrepreneurs to know where that is. Now, you said that you spend about 95% of your time on those creation, those, you know, making it up kind of uh, And the coaching. coaching. How many direct reports do you have? Like, how many people are you dishing things out to and, like, delegating to on a daily basis? Because you you have an enormous, really well-oiled machine. I think that when I was at the event, they said you had 600 events happening this year, which yeah. is just astounding. Yeah. So how many people are, like, directly reporting to you? Yeah, I have six, basically six. I have managers. So the people around me are managers, and there's two types. There are two individuals who are innovation managers, and there are four who are focus managers. I'll just tell you the difference. The innovation managers are people who are only interested in doing new things that I come up with. What they do is they'll take my idea and they'll think through the process for implementing it, and then they'll staff it up. In other words, they'll not only create the solution, but they'll wrap a team around it and they'll train the team how to make it happen over and over again, and then they're finished with it and they don't want to do it again. They they don't want any ongoing responsibility for the project, and then they come back to me and said, got another one? So like I have- entrepreneurs. They are, except the Colby profile, the Colby system, there's a down-the-middle profile, which is actually the rarest one in the entire Colby system, and that is going across FactFinder, follow-through, quick-start, implementer, In the first three, they are between a four and six, which means 
they're not insistent and they're not resistant. They're just pure responders, okay? Their entire interest is taking something that someone else has thought up and actually putting it into the proper systems, the proper teamwork and doing it. And the joy is that they like taking someone else's new thing and actually making it into a real thing. And then they come back for more. So I've got two. One of them is named Kathy Davis, and she's my program innovation manager. So it's everything related to the program. And I have another one, Paul Hamilton, and he's the marketing innovation manager. So with Kathy, I've done 600 projects in the last 10 years with her. But each time it was something new. It could have been a really big thing, could have been a mid-sized thing, could have been a small thing. But she takes complete control and she becomes the manager on the project when I'm finished. So that's the innovation manager. The other managers are what I call focus managers. This is where I have identified a single activity that someone can be responsible for and My interplay with them is just about this single activity, and I'll give you an example. So I have two brand-new workshops every year where we can get 65 people in them. So my workshops tend to be really big. That's 130 people in the course of the year, and I have one manager who day in, day out is filling those seats. And that's all she does. She doesn't do anything else during the year. She doesn't have any other responsibilities but she has to work with our sales team. So we have two sales team. We have a get them in sales team, that's brand new people coming into the program, and then we have a keep them in sales team. Because <laughs> in this kind of business, you can fill up the first year, but if you have nobody left after three years, you're just spinning your wheels. So historically, for every two people who enter year one of Strategic Coach, one of them goes into year four, which is really high for the industry. I mean, we have really, really high numbers for the industry. And that's where all the profitability is in your company because those further sales really don't require that much effort. It's funny that you say that because again, like we test and we're changing a lot of things, but one thing that we've done, and again, like this is just for our business, I'm not necessarily saying it's the way to do business, but we don't have titles. Like Ari and I don't call ourselves CEO or COO. And instead we're giving people like they're head of a process. So just as you just described, yeah. you have a sales to get people in and another person to keep people. We're doing stuff similar to that where we have yeah. a person who's just in charge of onboarding, a person who's just in charge of training, training new VAs, a person that's just in charge of hiring, who's just in charge of making sure that the tasks are going smoothly. And again, like that's their title. We're not, sure. there's no C-level thing, but we've been moving towards this model more because what we found was giving someone one very clear defined role keeps them accountable. And when you have too many people overlapping to say manage tasks, then when there's a mess up, no one feels accountable for it. Yeah. And it's the difference between results and status. You know, a lot of people have positions inside their organization. They're based on status and it's reflected in their compensation and it's reflected in their perks and it's reflected in control that they have over other people, but it has nothing to do with results. It's not measurable in results. Mine, I've just decided that the person will be called by the result that they achieve. So Eleonora, who's sitting here with me, she's the one who does all the setup on calls like this. She's what's called my game changer manager. 
I'm creating a new program, Higher Than 10 Times, uh, in 2018. It has started off over a period of years of me just having in-depth discussions with someone who have a different business model that I, one is that I think is a game changer in their own industry, but the other thing is that it would supply a capability to my company that I do not want to create inside my company. So we're a coaching workshop company, and I don't ever let it get any bigger than that's our single business. Stephen Covey had a great line. He says, the main thing is to always remember to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is filling up workshops and keeping them in as long as possible. I'm not tempted to add any other dimension to strategic coach. I'm married to one person who's my life partner, and I don't have any need for dating. <laughs> you know, I mean, people say, yeah, I kind of date on the side. And I said, yeah, well, you're not keeping the main thing the main thing here, and it'll show up. So that has a lot to do with it. You guys are just perfectly situated for this type of thinking. The type of thinking we do perfectly sets up what you guys do in the marketplace, and that's a beautiful thing. Well, thank you. So do you believe in all the experience of all these different entrepreneurs? Do you think that entrepreneurs are born or can be taught, I guess? it's always, This was always a big question when I was in business school at Warden, like, entrepreneurship be taught? I don't think so personally, but I'm curious. Yeah, I think there's a real difference. Some people are driven into entrepreneurship just because nobody else wants to give them a job. Yeah, that would be me. <laughs> yeah, but let's say they were a VP for some company and they just restructured their company and the guy's out. This is all he's ever done and he's a VP. And then he buys a franchise or something like that. So where before he worked for some jerk for 50 hours a week, now he gets to work for some jerk for 70 hours a week. First of all, we have almost no franchise owners and never have any. We have not franchisees, we have franchisors, people who create franchise networks, and that's their business. But the people who actually own franchises never do well in our program because they're not really entrepreneurs. It's kind of a autonomous corporate structure that they're living in. But I notice a real difference between entrepreneurs, those who are as successful as they need to be and those who are as successful as they want to be. And there's a huge difference between needing to be successful and wanting to be successful. All the great stuff in the entrepreneurial world is done by the wanters, not by the needers. Mm -hmm. The needers have just basically got themselves a job. You know, they've created a job for themselves and they have no ambition to go any further. They don't have any inclination to innovate something new and take it into the marketplace and change that. The wanders are the innovators. They don't need to do this. They just want to do it. I think that's a good distinction. Yeah. And I will tell you this, it's something that a lot of female entrepreneurs battle with in Canada, and I think also in the United States. The majority of new business starts are actually by women incorporating themselves. But what I notice is that they come in with specific needs. In other words, maybe they're single with children and they have to take care of their kids, but they have very, very specific needs that have to be fulfilled and they are as successful as they need be to do this. And I've got women who are really wanters. They want to create something new, but the ones who are the real change makers are generally men 
And they just got an idea. They have this idea and they fall in love with an idea and they'll stick with it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years until the idea comes true and they'll take any amount of punishment along the way to learn what they need to learn to actually get there. So it's really interesting. This just comes because I've coached for 43 years and I just noticed certain distinctions. That's interesting. But I think it's early in the game for women. It's just something they're getting used to so that it's probably a time thing more than anything else. What's the average age of the people that you're coaching and strategic coach? And do you find that there's a difference among how people accept being coached or learn from you if they're in their 30s, say in their 50s or 60s? Yeah, I would say the spread is 30 to 60 with the average just about in the middle. Mm -hmm. In the 20s, it's hard to get their attention because they've been reading books and they've been going to conferences where they get notions like go big or go home and all that sort of stuff. And if you're not willing to kill yourself to be an entrepreneur, there's a lot of foolish thoughts that they have in their 20s about that. They think they're immortal and they don't worry about their health and they think they're going to have energy forever. They're pretty single-minded about their thing. And so they don't really have relationships. They don't have any social life and everything else. 30 is like the wall in the marathon. You know, marathon runners talk about hitting the wall. 30 years old is like the wall. Certainly is for men. Most men, the worst decade they have in their entire life is between 30 and 40. And the reason is because society pretty well supports them up until 30. <laughs> so far in my 30s, it's been, my be it's yeah, been the most fun for me so far, but... <laughs> yeah, well... I hope your worst is behind you then. <laughs> yeah. And what I mean by that is that you meet a lot of really bright people in their 20s, but they're really bright because they had really supportive parents. They went to really great schools. They grew up in the right place, and they have a lot of advantages, kind of like people who woke up on third base in baseball and think they hit a triple. Yeah. <laughs> they just had so many advantages. When I talk about society, I mean, we invest a lot in young people because we're hoping for a big return later. Actually, the crossover point between what you've taken out of society and when you start actually contributing to society is actually about 36 years old. Everybody up to 36 has been basically borrowing. And then after 36, you start contributing back. But the other thing is that at 30, you're mainly a product of where you came out of. And by 40, you're either an individual on your own right or you become even more just a representative of where you came from. Mm. I see people with promise, their first-class minds and everything else, but they don't have what it takes to actually be a unique individual. Uh -huh. Entrepreneurism really sorts this out. I mean, if you're in the entrepreneurial world because you get a report card every 30 days. <laughs> Just to switch gears a bit, I know that you're a big proponent of free days, and this has actually been a topic recently with Ari and I, even before Strategic Coach. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to be a, a trader, and on the trading desk, every year you were forced to take two weeks off where you're completely unplugged. And they do that not because they're trying to free your mind and they care about your brain. It's really for compliance reasons to make sure that you're not hiding trade. Yeah. I recently, for the first time since we started the company, took four days off completely unplugged. And I came back and I, we were, had a conversation. I'm like, I think we have to do what I used to do in the bank where we can start maybe with one week and work it up, but where we're completely unplugged, not just for our mental sanity, 
But apart from uncovering trades, we never hid trades. But what it always did, at least in terms of trading, was by having someone else take over your portfolio and have a second pair of fresh eyes on what you're doing in terms of processes mm-hmm. and how you're managing things. Whenever I came back from vacation, someone always had some suggestions of improvement for the way I was doing my work. Mm-hmm. And we had this discussion that we should do that. And it's like a stress test on our system, mm-hmm. how we're operating. And we'll get a fresh eyes on every process if we make every key person step away for a week or two, apart from the mental sanity of just restarting. So that was one thing that we're going to start implementing next year. And then actually just even recently the other day, we were saying, wouldn't it be great if on Thursdays we didn't do any work and we just read a new book every Thursday? Mm-hmm. You know, is that technically a free day in your concept of a free day? I, I would it's imagine buffer, it is. Day, but 2017, we're going to probably experiment with these two changes, which we're pretty excited for. Yeah, well, if it's a business book, it's a buffer day. Because it's business related. If you're reading Tom Clancy, probably not. Or Jack <laughs> Reacher. I found some interesting productivity concepts in a Jack Reacher novel. So. Oh, Jack Reacher. His number one principle is one of the best in the world. Retaliate first. <laughs> yeah, right. Sun Tzu couldn't have said it better. So that's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And for me, chess books, I get a lot, a lot of business strategy. Out yeah, of well, that's book. okay. But I draw a division between chess and business. It's another realm But everything you're saying, Nick, is totally true. And again, I go back to people get really embedded in just tactical, and the two weeks away returns you back to strategic. Mm -hmm. When you're in a tactical mode, there are 25 important things to do. When you move back to strategic, there's maybe three important things to do. Maybe 15 of the things that you were doing before, you say, why am I even doing those things? You only got into them because you were doing them. Yeah. And another switching of gears, but at Genius Network, I heard you say that you're taking Adderall now. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. For six years, I didn't get diagnosed till I was 66. And then I took it and it's been a world changer for me. How does that affect your creativity? Because when I split up with my ex-fiance like six years ago and I was trading, I thought I had ADD because I couldn't concentrate because obviously I was going through all this. So I went on Adderall for a year and A lot of my job involved math, which maybe on the surface doesn't sound creative, but I was creating trading strategies with math formulas. And a big part of it was being creative and trying to understand where there was money to be made and where there might be market inefficiencies. And once I went on Adderall, I could sit at the trading desk and not even get up to pee for the whole day and literally like sit there doing like one thing well. But I definitely lost a creative spark and I wasn't coming up with like innovative algorithms anymore. I could sit there for longer and maybe do more work, but I couldn't produce like a really innovative algorithm for that year. So I'm just curious to see if you've experienced obviously the benefit of being able to concentrate, but has it stunted any of your creativity? I would say just the opposite. I mean, the last six years have been the most productive at creating new things basically in lifetime. You know, I can't make any general statement about something like a pharmaceutical because it's so individual. Some things do some things to some people, and I just happened to hit it good that the first thing they recommended actually worked like a charm. And two things, I noticed that the first time I took Adderall, for the first time I realized that my entire life up until then had been noise, a lot of noise, and everything went quiet. And the other thing is that everything slowed down. I could actually see 
almost see my thoughts, and I could hear other people, and I could almost, my listening went way up. And, you know, a lot of a coaching is about listening. It's good listening. And a lot of creativity is just taking in a lot of very useful input first before you reformulate it as a creative breakthrough. So I know I can only talk for myself there. But more and more, and I talked to Peter Diamandis about this, there's genetic factors involved. I think ADD is a general description of a lot of other things going on. So I don't really know the story, but I always recommend that people go off and get themselves analyzed. I go to the Amen Clinic, Daniel Amen. There's a lot of other people who are psychiatrists and psychologists, but Daniel works on mind maps or brain scans, you know, and he can show the difference in brain scans. And I like seeing measurement, but it also tells me what a good job I've done of self-therapy up until now, because mm. he states and his team members state that everything I've created in the program for other people was actually designed for me to handle my own ADD. It's probably one of the simpler exercises that you offer in Strategic Coach, but I actually found it to be the most impactful which is the positive focus. Mm. So for people who don't know what it is, I'll give it like a 10 second cap of it. But basically you're just writing down what your biggest accomplishment was over the last quarter, why it was important, what you can do to progress it further and what the very next step is to do that. You do that for a few of them. And the reason that that was so interesting to me is because a lot of times what we do when we're working with clients, when we focus on uh, how we can help them offload and delegate more is we usually go with, what don't you like doing? What are you bad at? What do you mm -hmm. do every day and it just annoys you? And it's very negative. I mean, mm -hmm. it works. It definitely works, but it's negative. Mm -hmm. The first thing I did when I got back from coach last week or the week before, and I had some calls with clients was those are the questions I asked them. Tell me about something that you accomplished in the last mm -hmm. quarter. And you know, how can we progress that further? And nine times out of 10, when they told me what the very next action was, it was something they could delegate. Yeah. The policy in strategic coach is if you're having a meeting between two people or more, you start with a positive focus for two or three minutes about something you're excited about. Then you talk about what you're there to talk about. And then at the end, you do a positive focus on how you handled what you were talking about. And it just seals the front and seals the bottom. Because let's say you have a first thing in the morning meeting. So people you know, are coming in from different places. You don't know where they've been. You don't know what went on since you saw them last. And they tend to bring that in the room with them. So you sit down, let's say, at 8 o'clock, and you're supposed to talk about something. Well, half their attention is still back where they came from or what they're going through. So what we do is we have to go around the room. And it doesn't have to be about anything related to their job, just something that lifts their spirits. You know, it's just something it gives them a bolt of energy. But everybody else has to listen to everybody else as you go around, and the meetings I'm in, and these are pre-workshops, so I might have eight team members in for the workshop, and we go through, and then I talk about, okay, this is what we're up to today, and then at the end of the meeting, we say, so what's the day going to be for you today? I know what I'm doing as the coach. What are you doing in the room? How are you going to help out during the day? And then at the end of the day, we get back together, and we debrief, and we do the same thing. It makes sure that when people are there, they're actually there. I mean, this is the biggest skill in life is to always be where you actually are. Sure. Now, do you do that for every meeting, no matter what type of meeting? Like, for instance, if I'm going to have a three-minute talk with a developer, 
Am I going to spend two minutes talking about a positive focus, then three minutes talking about what we want to talk about, and then another two or three minutes? So 50% of the meeting is going to just be on positive focus? Yeah, you'll probably go more than three minutes in the middle. But yeah, you're going to do that. And it means that you protected the actual creative space. I'm protecting it from outside interference, Mm. from people's personal lives, from things that they're ticked off about, about their work and everything else. I don't want to have that as part of the creative discussion. I just want them get their energy up, get their morale up, and now let's everybody talk through the experience and everybody contributes. Usually it's shorter because people are just contributing energy. And then at the end of it, they get a boost out of the experience itself and they're on to the next thing in a higher state of energy. Well, I'm definitely not doing that with the developers. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you that. <laughs> so yeah, but they live in that world. The other thing is that almost every entrepreneur I've ever met, when they show up, there's two people inside them. There's the one who's really creative, and then there's the critic. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, and I what I want to do is I want to neutralize the critic right up front. Uh. You don't have to be hard on entrepreneurs. You can't possibly be as hard on an entrepreneur than the entrepreneur. Yeah. The entrepreneurs know how to manipulate themselves far better than you could ever learn. How much of coaching is asking the right question versus you giving a great answer? I guarantee the first and I hope for the second. So, in other words, everything really, really is successful or not successful depending upon the upfront question. So I was asking that question, lining it up, because could you create a version of strategic coach to the masses and maybe even we get involved to help you where it's maybe automated texting every day of the right questions or on a quarterly basis or some intro version of strategic coach where they don't get to fly out and meet you or the people, but they're still at least getting the questions on a regular basis and maybe access to some of the tools that they would need. And instead of you being able to serve, maybe, I don't know how many people you have, but maybe 10xing the number Mm. of clients you have on an intro version. It's definitely on the drawing board. We've gone from having almost no tools in 1974 to a massive amount of tools for getting across. The real big thing that I'm really interested in is holographic stuff and virtual reality stuff, where they have a feeling of really being engaged with another person There is something, I will say, and you'll probably notice it pretty quickly, Ari, if you haven't, is that there's something about being in the room with other people that makes a huge difference. And the reason is that people really respond on many more levels of learning when they're actually in the presence of a live human being. People say, well, can you imagine what this would do in India if you took a coach to India? And I said, well, I can guarantee you I'm never going there. But I said, you know, if we had a program where 100,000 people from India were paying us $500 a year, I'd be open to the possibility. Mm -hmm. It's just that the next quarter, we've got ways of expanding what we're doing right now. And when I hit the quarter where that's the next thing to do, then that'll be a really good thing. And what about making some of your tools electronic versus paper, like impact filters and things like this? Is it in the roadmap to maybe make a Gmail plugin of an impact filter or some yeah. electronic things so that it's just starting to get away from the paper pencil? Yeah. We already have the four C's as a web app that anybody can download. 
And we have the win streak, which is a little app where you, every night you identify your three wins for the day and you project what your three wins are going to be for tomorrow. That's a App Store app. I'm definitely seeing more and more the possibility that a lot of the basic tools that have been around for 20 years can just be stuff that people can download. And then you have audio and video walkthroughs so that you can actually walk them through. You see, everything we do is a thinking process. So I'm creating modular thinking processes just based on the kind of thinking that I've noticed serves entrepreneurs really well. And it all has to do with always focusing on the main thing and kind of moving the other stuff off to the side. Where do you capture new ideas? Is it like in a notebook or do you have someone to just tell somebody? No, it's all in the workshop. I do all my creativity in the workshop, interacting with the clients, and I have smart boards. So I'm a trained artist. I started off in advertising. I was a copywriter and layout artist for BBDO in my 20s. And I've always had a really good ability to hear somebody's idea and using circles and arrows and stars and everything else, being able to kind of simulate what the idea was. So what happens in the course of a workshop, somebody will say something. I said, whoa, 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 that was a good one. That was a good one. Let's stop there. Let's talk about it. And I just go to the smart board, which is a computer, so everything is saved. And I just do the idea, and then I'll get a conversation going around. I say, I'm excited about this. Is anybody else excited about it? You know, And then we'll get a conversation going. And I'm just watching whether the idea is in play at all or it was just something that struck me, but it didn't struck anyone else. And during an average workshop, I might do this three or four times. Maybe one of them is good enough that I'll repeat it the next day. So all my idea, I do 13 workshops a quarter. And I have about 550 people, and they're bright people. They're doing new things, and they're feeding me all day long. So I'm not a guy who goes off into a room and creates stuff. I'm testing right on the spot. You know, the biggest thing I've learned about the internet marketers, the faster you test and fail, the better. So like if you're walking down the street and you get an idea like that? that just... No, I get that. I get that. Yeah. But I don't worry about it. I get a lot of ideas. So it's very free. people say, I had the greatest idea. I just missed it. And I said, was that the only one for the last five years? I think it's a tragedy that you missed it. But I have a lot of stuff that goes through. I don't get nervous about capturing every idea. Usually the good ones come back. It's like people go swimming in the ocean. You come out and you say, how is the water? Well, I wasn't happy. I missed a lot of it. Well, of course you did. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> you know, and the same thing with ideas. We live in a world of ideas. It's like water. We're swimming in a world of ideas. You don't need them all. And you just need the next one. That's a very good way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. See, it's a scarcity mentality that, you know, if you're not alert and you get, it's total scarcity. A lot of entrepreneurs who are working on abundance for others, they don't have enough time. They don't have enough help. They're constantly in a sort of urgent situation. You know, if we don't do this now, we're going to miss it forever. That's scarcity thinking. So... When, you know, you said, uh, like, this is the plan for the next quarter. When I get to the quarter, it's not, then I'll, be. so I know that you have a plan to live to the next century. Yeah, but the end of this century, actually. The end of this century. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go into the 22nd century. You know, when I get within about five years of it, then we'll, we'll make a judgment. But 156, I'll be 156, yeah. 
which is impossible right now, by the way. Well, all you have to do at 154 is go gluten-free and then you should be fine. You'll make it to the end. <laughs> um, so how do you plan on living that long? Uh, where did you get that number from? Ray Kurzweil. Have you ever seen Ray Kurzweil? Yeah. yeah. Somebody asked him that question. He says, basically, you want to live forever, do you? And he says, well, I know I want to be alive tomorrow. And I think tomorrow I'll feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so what I'm saying is, how far out do you plan with the business? Or is it really sort of quarter by quarter? Or- 25, 25 years. Okay. Yeah, so when I was 70, which was two years ago, I talked to my entire team. We have about 120. We're spread out over eight time zones. I talked to them and I said, now, I don't know where you people stand with 70-year-olds. I don't know you got relatives that are 70 And you probably developed a notion of what a 70-year-old is like. So just to dispel any thoughts about whether I'm not going to be around for very long, I'm going to be doing a workshop, strategic coach workshop, when I'm 95. I'm going to be a lot smarter than I am today and probably have a much higher energy level than I have today. So I just want to give you a sense of where I'm heading. And then I laid out some things that I thought we would accomplish during the next 25 years that I can see. And this is the 10 times program. The 10 times program, everybody's got a 25-year framework. 25 years is neat because there's 100 quarters. Right. So every quarter just represents 1%. You don't have to break the bank during any one quarter. But there are certain things that you should do which are like compound interest. You're going to do something during the next quarter that just keeps compounding for all the remaining quarters. The first exponential we ever had on the planet was compound interest. So that whole notion that you would invest something now, then it multiplies itself quarter after quarter is sort of my basic approach to the future. So I think that way about money, but I also think that way about new medical technologies, new scientific technologies. You know, I'm completely gene mapped. I have a complete biome mapping of my body. And we've already discovered things which really required intervention that if I hadn't intervened, there was no chance that I could keep living. There are certain things that showed up that got caught just because of genetic flaws. And then, you know, there's the possibility just recently of CRISPR-R, which is a way of actually going in and re-engineering your genes. So I'm going on the basis that I won't live to 156 if I don't have it as a goal. That's my number one thing. Number two is so far so good. (laughs) And number three is the things that are happening in the world that would be supportive of that goal are multiplying every day. New things are becoming available, but you wouldn't find them unless you had the goal. So one of the reasons I have the goal is just so that my eyes are picking up and my ears are picking up on the new stuff. If one day I die, I'm not going to be disappointed because I'm on to something else. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people say, I just think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And I said, maybe other people, not me, I'm gone, you know. (laughs) So it's interesting, and that type of thinking is really part and parcel of our program, is that a lot of people just leave their future indefinite because they believe that there's too much that can happen where they don't have control. And I says, no, but you can have the intention of certain results out in the future, and you will look at the world differently. You will experience the world differently based on your intentions. So we just 
Last year, we did $32 million. That was our gross income for the year. And so I just set a new pattern that 2041 will be at $320 million. And ever since I did that, all of a sudden, my mind is looking at, gee, what do we have going for us right now that would contribute to going to $320 million? And the brain just wants something to work on. It doesn't care what it works on. So you're the one who has to tell your brain what to work on. Yeah, I often find that. So the last question that we always like to ask on these interviews is, what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Well, I have a model that I'm really disabled. I had a friend who was in the Canadian government who was the chairman of a project where he went around Canada to interview all sorts of different disabled and handicapped people. And he asked me as a copywriter, and I did this on the side while I was coaching, I, I went around and I interviewed 40 different kinds of disabilities. The only one that I really couldn't talk to the person was an autistic person who just didn't talk, but I talked to the parents. And what developed Nick and Ari in my mind was these people are just very visibly disabled so that you notice it. But I said, I'm disabled too. I said, there's areas where I'm perfectly capable, but get me outside my area and I'm disabled. And I think there's an arrogance on the part of really smart, talented people that their intelligence and their talent actually extends into all sorts of different areas. I mean, you get movie stars talking about the political system. Well, their great skill is pretending to be someone else. When I hear a movie actor talking about the real world, I said, it destroys the magic. You know, first of all, they sound like idiots, but it destroys the magic. So you got to be real clear in what area you're actually good. And that's the center of your entrepreneurial company. So the two of you, your partners, right? Yeah. yeah. And your unique ability definition of where each of you is really, really great is actually the center organizing principle of your life. And then everybody else's job is to free you up in some way. Yeah. That's the entire business model. I have 120 people and the number one rule for all 120 people is free Dan up. Yeah. Free Dan up. There's not two versions of it. There's just one version of it. And then the next thing is that in any area that you're not good, you're going to immediately meet people who are a lot better in that area. And they would love to be able to fully express that talent if you'll just give them the freedom to actually support you. That's awesome. So, Dan, thank you. That was an incredible hour of chatting with you. Can I ask you a question? What did you get out of it that you didn't already know? Well, I think it's the same thing that I got out of the workshop, honestly, is like I've heard you speak many times and it's always very impactful because, and I mean this in the most respectful and admiration giving way possible, like you tell me things that I feel like I already know, but you put them in a much clearer way. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the thing about I make things up, I don't make them real, like that's stuck with me for the last half an hour since you said that. And I'm probably going to write something mm-hmm. about that. It's actually exactly what I said to you at the very beginning of the thing is that it puts structure to something that's normally very unstructured to me. So this is a very good discussion for me. Good. Nick? I think that we naturally think already in the same way or with your principles. You get so stuck in the weeds with what you do on a daily basis that it's good to have someone just remind you about. If anything, it's just good to be Mm -hmm. reminded of it. And again, obviously, you have a different approach or slight nuances to how you think about things. And it's Overall, it's the same guiding principles, but it's interesting just to see a slightly different perspective with the same principle. Yeah, 
Plus, I've given you a new marketing copy. That was a big takeaway for you. Absolutely. Which, was, which is fantastic, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but also, it's got me thinking about, you know, how could we maybe help strategic coach? Or, yeah, well, that'll be the second podcast because we're going to do another one in January where I put you in the spotlight about all the different things that you can do for entrepreneurs. So that's the second one. But just something you brought up, Nick, you know what would be the better free time thing? That that audit week or that free week happens at the end of every quarter. And you would get about a 20, 30% greater impact on productivity throughout the year if you had that as a goal that will get to the point where each of us can be freed up for a week a quarter. Yeah. So it's kind of like an S-curve to it. You know, people have a lot of energy coming out and then it starts to fade. And then you do it again. And the second quarter has more productivity than the previous one. So you keep doing it because you're seeing it as a complete unit. It's a complete quarterly structure. Every quarter will end and begin with a one week away from the work. And you'll notice your sense of perspective, your sense of strategic energy, your investing in the things that have multipliers, it'll be enhanced enormously if you had that as a goal. Yeah, I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. The hard part, I think, for me to do that is, and I think I'm speaking for Ari too, is we love what we do so much that for me, it's not work, it's fun. Like I really enjoy meeting up with Ari and solving these problems and, mm-hmm. and working on the things. It's like, I have other hobbies that I like to do, but yeah. I can't think of something more fun than like what we do on a daily basis. It's not healthy to always do it, but I would be like worried that I would take vacation. I wouldn't have as much fun on the vacation than I would going to a Ludlow house. with. The- yeah, well, that's like an alcoholic saying, I just like socializing. Yeah. <laughs> I love socializing. <laughs> How old are you? I'm 32. Yeah, yeah. And I'm 30. You're still in the taking out of society stage. Wait till you hit 36. Then you have to start giving back. Yeah, I haven't given back anything yet. But I thought, you know, we don't have to give back, right? No, never you never took, took anything. anything. <laughs> Not as um, an so, entrepreneur, but as a human you have. Right, exactly. Anyway, real pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, so, this is huge opportunity for us. So I really appreciate that. You know, I consider podcast like this with you just to be pure bonus on our side. So I really appreciate it. Well, then thank you again, Dan. So everyone can go to strategiccoach.com to find out more. We're going to have links to that in the show notes, as well as your podcast, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great one. And the one, well, actually your, your two podcasts, the one you do with Joe as well. That's it. I mean, thank you. My pleasure. Want to create more positive leverage in your life? Visit www.getleverage.com to access additional interviews, our blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every week.